Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Simone Riscala, and you are listening to the Endow Podcast, a conversation not just about the feminine genius in general, but about cultivating your particular feminine genius through the Catholic intellectual tradition and intentional community. This is Annette Bergen, Executive Director of Endow, and it is my privilege to read Chapter 1 of the Endow Study Guide on St. Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa is my favorite saint, and getting to know her has been life-changing for me. For all the women discerning this study, I hope and pray she will be life-changing for you as well. Teacher of Prayer, a study on the life and writings of St. Teresa of Avila. Chapter 1, 16th Century Spain, Teresa's Hour, Opening Prayer. Let nothing upset you. Let nothing startle you. All things pass. God does not change. Patience wins all it seeks. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone is enough. Teresa of Avila's famous bookmark. Part 1. Introduction. There are few things more attractive than a soul who is deeply, wildly in love with God and with every bit of his creation. In Teresa of Jesus, known to us as St. Teresa of Avila, we find such a person. She is a towering personality and a strikingly beautiful woman with a voracious appetite for life. Teresa is a pioneer who forges her way through new frontiers. In Teresa, we find a woman who is fervent in her love for Christ and relentless in her desire to make his kingdom known. With the passion that marks her Spanish heritage, she takes her place not only with the great Spanish saints, but also among the flamenco dancers and bullfighters whose rough, uncomplicated energy exceeds human limitations in a most heroic way. This is St. Teresa of Avila. In this study guide, we will explore the life of this 16th century Spanish nun who is the foundress of the reformed order of Carmelites, referred to as the discalced or barefoot Carmelites. Her spirituality continues all these years later to inspire thousands of women and men throughout the world. In telling her story, we hope to do it in a way that makes her feel uniquely present, as if she is living among us and personally teaching us the secrets of God. With this goal in mind, the first chapter of the book is a historical overview of the times in which Teresa lives. This will give us a political and cultural context from which to view the unique life story of this remarkable saint. Chapters two and three take us through the events of her life, all of which lead her to find God in new and all-consuming ways. In the subsequent chapters, we will present her theological teaching by concentrating on Teresa's writings, most especially on her highly respected guide for spiritual development, The Interior Castle. This extraordinary little book of mysticism, poetry, practical advice, and perceptive psychology is truly her masterpiece, and she wrote it in just eight weeks. We end the book 
With a short account of Teresa's efforts as a reformer and the foundations she establishes, which are the tangible fruits of her life's work. In any event, this discussion can make for some heavy lifting as we try to understand what St. Teresa has to teach us. And it is our hope that this experience will be one of great reward. With Teresa as our guide, we will embark upon the spiritual journey that takes place within our souls. After making this effort, we will surely emerge not only with a deeper understanding of ourselves, but also more and more in love with God. So what do we know about Teresa of Avila and where do we begin? First, we know that St. Teresa is a woman of Spanish descent, a charismatic leader, a reformer, a writer, and a consummate teacher in the art of prayer. We will see, among other things, that she has the ability to lead others in the midst of great obstacles and at the same time urge them to go deeper in their faith. She writes to her sisters and to us about what it means to pray and how to grow in prayer even under the most hectic circumstances. To Saint Teresa, prayer is everything. And she assures us that no, no matter what our life experience happens to be, it is always possible to pray. Certainly, Teresa's insight into prayer is one of the reasons that Pope Paul VI named her the first woman doctor of the church. To this day, she is unique in that she accomplishes not only the reform of Carmelite communities of women, but also of men. Pope Paul VI described Teresa in the most glowing terms on the day that he conferred this title upon her. St. Teresa of Avila's doctrine shines with charisms of truth, of conformity to the Catholic faith, and of usefulness for the inspiration of souls, for the instruction of souls. And we might mention another particular point, the charism of wisdom. We are undoubtedly before a soul in which extraordinary divine initiative was active and was perceived and described by Teresa simply, faithfully, stupendously. Being the first female doctor of the church is certainly an important distinction. Nevertheless, it is fair to ask the question, why should we focus on St. Teresa now? What does she have to teach the women of today? Author Claudia Moore Burney gives us some insight into these questions. I had my doubts. She was a nun and I was married and the mother of a sizable brood. She lived five centuries ago. I was thoroughly postmodern. She was considered a leader of the Counter-Reformation movement. I was born and bred thoroughly Protestant, and despite my love of John of the Cross, had an almost pathological fear of most things Roman Catholic. Teresa led a life of poverty, but I had hundreds of spiritual books, cable television with four different Christian networks, and unlimited wireless internet access. Yet I still felt lost most days. How could her centuries-old teaching possibly calm the screeching wilderness within me? Teresa shushed me. Generally, I hate it when people I'm reading shush me, but I suspected she had something important to say. 
So I quieted myself and continued to read until I came upon her famous bookmark prayer. The words washed over me in waves of peace. Let nothing upset you. Let nothing startle you. All things pass. God does not change. Patience wins all it seeks. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone is enough. Through this simple prayer, we see that St. Teresa wants us to know in no uncertain terms that God alone is enough. She wants us to be patient in our efforts and unruffled by the circumstances of life. We will learn that St. Teresa wants us to be serious about prayer, and yet she insists that we not take ourselves too seriously in the process. This extraordinary saint demonstrates a subtle and endearing wit in which she exhibits the twin qualities of humility and humor. Perhaps better than most, she recognizes that humor makes life bearable. It allows us to break but not shatter. We will see that her dry, edgy humor seeps into her writing, particularly as she is describing her hilarious observations of the human condition. She pokes fun at the ironies of life and is always ready to smile in the face of adversity and discomfort. These are some of the reasons that we will benefit from delving into the life of St. Teresa of Avila as our, at our particular moment in time. When so many issues swirl about a woman's call and destiny, we need her. In fact, this study guide is an invitation to meet Teresa in her hour, in the time and place in which she lives. It is a chance for us to ponder how her particular spiritual journey and teaching can enrich our own. Like all of us, St. Teresa's spiritual journey begins at a given time and place. Even the geography in which she lives forms her in subtle ways. No one, not Teresa, nor any human person is born into a specific age and culture by chance. Just as she does not choose the time or the location of her birth, neither do we. It is a matter of mystery and gift. They say in Spain that to understand Teresa of Avila, one must look at Castile, its windswept plains, its granite boulders, its bitter winters, and sun-scorched summers were the womb that nourished a young Teresa. A gentler landscape would not have produced a woman of such courage and determination. Castile speaks of hardship and danger, of struggle and tenacity, of time and eternity, of life and death. Castile does not compromise. We will see that both the land and the hour in which Teresa lives affect not only her life, but also the way she lives it. She is a product of her culture, and that culture is shaped by its history. Thus, before we explore her life and writings in the following chapters, we will contemplate the historical events leading up to 16th century Spain the world into which St. Teresa of Avila is born. We will begin our review of Spanish history in the year 711, as we describe the political and cultural climate of this diverse country. 
Here we will investigate the reconquest of Christian Spain and the unification of a war-torn country. In the next section, we will see how the Catholic monarchy of King Fernando and Queen Isabel, together with the church, play an important role in establishing unity, especially through the courts of the Spanish Inquisition. Our next time period involves the wonders of discovery and the flowering of culture as we investigate the period of exploration beyond Spain and into the new world. This expanded view of the world brings new opportunities and new challenges as well. We will also follow the events in Europe where the seeds of religious discord are planted and come to fruition in the likes of the Protestant Revolution. These dramatic happenings result in a seemingly irreconcilable division within the church. In our fourth section, we will take a closer look at the church itself and enter the world of the monastery. These monastic communities of men and women form the bedrock of the church's evangelical mission, providing a place of safety and prayer. Nevertheless, reform is sorely needed in many of these communities where human weaknesses abound and self-discipline is in scarce supply. In our last section, we will take a final look at Spain in the 16th century through the eyes of its women, and we will ponder the difficulties they encounter in their everyday lives. We will learn of their educational and occupational opportunities or lack thereof, and we will examine the differences between women of means and those living in poverty. On a final note, we will see how St. Teresa, in contrast to the culture around her, provides a new experience for the nuns under her care, one that encourages their feminine genius to excel. Discussion questions. One, St. Teresa reassures us that it is always possible to pray. With Teresa, it was prayer first, prayer last, and prayer always. With Teresa, literally all things were sanctified and sweetened and made fruitful by prayer. If you could ask St. Teresa of Avila to teach you just one thing about prayer, what would it be? Two, St. Teresa has a subtle and endearing wit in which she exhibits the twin qualities of humility and humor. She recognizes that humor makes life bearable. It allows us to break but not shatter. Share some different ways we can use humor to help diffuse the ironies of life. Three, like all of us, St. Teresa's spiritual journey begins at a given place and time. This study guide is an invitation to meet Teresa in her hour and to ponder how her particular spiritual journey and teaching can enrich our own. If given the option, would you choose to be born at a different time in history? Why do you suppose that this is your hour? Two, the Reconquista and the Unification of Spain. In order to provide a historical context to the life of St. Teresa of Avila, 
We will begin by looking back to the year 711. This is a year of dramatic events unparalleled in Europe at the time, a year in which the Moors, a Muslim people of mixed Berber Arab descent, invade Southern Spain, seizing nearly all of the then Christian territory in Hispania, modern day Spain and Portugal. Only a small Christian enclave remains in the Northern mountainous region known as Asturias. The conquerors came like men from another planet. They had no roots in Spain, no connection with Spain. They spoke a language, Arabic, never before heard in Spain. They proclaimed the faith of Muhammad the prophet, called Islam, affirming God but rejecting Christ, pouring scorn and contempt on all who would not accept it. The goal of their military community was the conquest of the world, and by this year of 711, they were close to achieving it. In the 79 years since the death of their prophet, the followers of Muhammad Muslims, or Moors, as they came to be known in Spain, had seized many lands which had been entirely Christian for centuries. The Holy Land, where Christ had walked, Syria, where Christians had first been named, Asia Minor, which St. Paul had evangelized, Egypt, where St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, had saved the faith from the Arian heresy, North Africa, where the peerless genius, St. Augustine, had been Bishop of Hippo. They had conquered Mesopotamia and Persia. They had marched to the gates of India and China. They had assaulted Constantinople, the greatest city in the world, and almost taken it. Unprepared, shocked, overwhelmed, the Christian kingdom of Spain disintegrated before the invaders. Its King Roderick fought one battle with them. He was totally defeated and disappeared. His body was never found. The Moors had no shadow of a right to be in Spain at all, to say nothing of mastering and ruling all of it. They meant their conquest to doom the Christian faith there as it had been doomed for the vast majority of the people in the other countries Muslims had conquered. Why should Spain be different? The Spanish people answer this hostile move with retaliation and military force. From the very moment of this invasion onto Spanish soil, the fight to expel the Moors and reestablish Catholicism scarcely ceases for 700 years or more. Through a series of wars and battles, the long Reconquista, Reconquest, begins as Christian kingdoms fight for control of Hispania. The process is gradual and grueling, but eventually the Christian kingdoms to the north retake control of the peninsula and reclaim their country for Christ. By 1300, the only region still under the control of the Moors is Grenada, a small territory in the south of Spain. This stronghold would eventually fall but it will take the leadership of two great monarchs to accomplish this monumental task. The seeds are planted for this eventual victory over the Moors over a century later. In 1469, 46 years before Teresa is born, the Spanish world is altered once again as Queen Isabel I of Castile, 
marries King Fernando V of Aragon. With the joining of these two households, Spain becomes united in a new and powerful way. The marriage of these two monarchs essentially unites the eastern coast of Spain, connecting its important trading centers and international ports to the largest of the old Christian states, namely the great inland plateau of Castile. Like St. Teresa of Avila, Queen Isabel is remarkable in her own right. In fact, in his book, Isabel of Spain, the Catholic Queen, biographer Warren H. Carroll tells us that Isabel is the greatest woman ruler in all of history, one of the supreme champions of the Holy Roman Catholic faith across 2,000 years. Why has this queen, out of the many hundreds who have reigned during the long course of Christian history, always been called in her homeland the Catholic Queen, as though there were no others. It was because Queen Isabel was a Catholic first, a Catholic above all, a Catholic who served God as few others have ever served him. It was in Isabel's name, under Isabel's banners, and by Isabel's authority that the Catholic faith was brought to America by Christopher Columbus, the man she chose, and his companions. Today, as a result, a larger percentage of the people of the Americas are Catholic than on any other continent, even Europe itself. In a reign of 30 years, Isabel had lifted her people from the mire to the stars. She had made Spain the leading nation of the world, not just in wealth and power, but above all in justice, good government, a vibrant faith, and a strong and healthy church. From Isabel, Spain went forth not only conquistadors, but missionaries and saints, crossing mighty oceans into many lands never before known to Christians, converting millions who have remained Catholic ever since. She bore the enormous responsibilities of supreme public authority and her many heavy personal crosses without discouragement or complaint, above all without any change in her faith, her morality, or her charity, except to strengthen them all. For all her victories, she gave God the glory, claiming only her sins of which she remained ever conscious as her own. Yet no scandal ever stained her person. Well might Washington Irving call her one of the purest and most beautiful characters in the pages of history. Known by the Spanish people as the Catholic monarchs for, the, for both their devotion to and their defense of the Catholic faith, Queen Isabel and King Fernando begin their reign by taking dramatic steps to uniform, unify Spain and transform it into the most significant political power in the world. This transformation process is catapulted forward in the year 1492, which is perhaps the most significant year in the history of Spain. It begins with the capture of Grenada by the Christian forces of King Fernando and Queen Isabel in January. And with this defeat, the Moors lose their last foothold in Spain. The Reconquista is now complete, and Spain becomes a single entity, and a Christian one at that. 
From a political perspective, Spain is now a whole rather than just the sum of its parts. Yet these parts are, in reality, the Spanish people with all of their religious and cultural diversity. What does life look like for the people on the ground? And how does a unified political state become a unified people? This is the task at hand for Fernando and Isabel. For the last seven and a half centuries, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are seen living side by side in a multicultural mix that that is at times peaceful and yet other times hostile and violent. They never lived together on the same terms, and their coexistence was always a relationship between unequals. With that inequality, the minorities played their roles while attempting to avoid conflicts. Make no mistake, this task of gathering their citizens together in one cohesive group borders on the impossible. Now, with the conquest of Grenada in hand, their Spanish homeland must absorb hundreds of thousands of new citizens. Unfortunately, however, only a small minority of these new Spaniards are Christians. This redistribution of the population in Grenada is an unforeseen result of the long centuries of the Reconquista, during which most of the Christian inhabitants of the Kingdom of Grenada leave while Muslims and Jews from the reconquered territories come to stay. The terms of the Treaty of Grenada guarantee that Spanish citizens who are Muslims have the right to practice their faith. Some remain to take advantage of this right, but most of the Muslims leave Spain at this time. The Jews, on the other hand, have no such guarantee. They have long been second-class citizens powerless in comparison to both their Christian and Muslim neighbors. This kind of inequality, as well as the animosity that exists among the people of the realm, troubles Isabel and Fernando, whose greatest desire is to form a united body of Spanish citizens. Their first attempts to help their Jewish countrymen to achieve a greater sense of equality are met with outrage and, alas, their efforts bear no fruit. From their royal perspective, these two Catholic monarchs recognize that the very existence of their Spanish kingdom hangs in the balance, and they strive tirelessly to avert the anarchy that threatens their country. Believing that the discord their people are experiencing comes from the lack of religious conformity among them, the Spanish king and queen proposed severe measures to bring about this uniformity of faith. To accomplish this overwhelming task, Isabel and Fernando issue a decree in April 1492, giving the Jewish people a choice. They can either convert to Catholicism or leave the country. This decree results in many people emigrating from Spain. However, Others choose to stay. Rather than leave their homes and possessions, they choose to receive the sacrament of baptism and assume a Catholic identity. In a similar fashion, the Muslim people are also expelled from Spain in the 17th century. This turn of events solves some of the problems at hand, but inevitably creates others. 
Choosing the Catholic faith over the, the Jewish faith causes scandal among the more resolute Jews who are ready to face expulsion rather than deny their faith. A similar situation occurs with those who convert from Islam. To make matters worse, many Catholics suspect the underlying motives of these new Christians. Are they Catholic in name only? How many convert to Christianity out of sincere belief and how many others make an outward profession of faith while continuing to practice their faith of origin in the privacy of their own homes? So serious is the unease over these new Jewish converts that something as simple as refusing to eat pork might lead some to believe that they are clinging to their Jewish roots. In some situations, the merest hint of non-Christian ancestry could lead to deprivation, humiliation, and exile. The conversion of Muslims or Jews in Spain to Christianity had often been stimulated by ambition or greed. Only Christians were allowed to hold high public office, and obviously only they could hold positions in the church, which were very influential or by fear, particularly when there was large-scale violence against Christians. Most of the conversions of the converts were not forced, but it was their motives that were suspect. <clears throat> In fact, there is convincing, indeed overwhelming evidence, which even the most critical modern historians have acknowledged, that tens of thousands of false converts who did not believe in the Christianity they professed, and by all indications never believed it, continued to live secretly by the teachings and rites of their former religion. Many had risen high in society and even in the church. Some were priests who mocked the mass as they said it. While most of the reports of false converts engaging in satanic rites were probably false, it would be rash to say that all of them were, for the worst passions in human nature feed on the kind of situation in which the false converts found themselves. Closely akin to suspicions about whether these conversions are real is the emphasis that the Spanish people placed on limpieza de sangre or purity of blood. At this time, these feelings are so extreme that they become a national obsession. In fact, both the ruling class and ordinary citizens alike believe that the true Spaniard must be able to boast pure blood, untainted by whiff of Jew or more. During these years, before participating in many of the privileges of citizenship, one must prove that he or she has no tainted blood. This pertains to not only recent converts, but also to their children and successive generations. In a class stratified society such as this, those who descend from old Christian commoners, even those at the lowest level of society can claim the right to honor. It was the Spaniards who gave the world the notion that an aristocrat's blood is not red, but blue the Spanish nobility started taking shape around the ninth century in classic military fashion, occupying land as warriors on horseback. 
they were to continue the process for more than 500 years, clawing back sections of the peninsula from its Moorish occupiers. And a nobleman demonstrated his pedigree by holding up his sword arm to display the filigree of blue-blooded veins beneath his pale skin, proof that his birth had not been contaminated by the dark-skinned enemy. Despite living under this extreme form of prejudice, some of these new Christians do advance socially and professionally, mostly through intermarriage or by paying bribes for documents that attest to the fact that they are descendants from generations of Christian ancestry. This change in status gives them the opportunity to participate in public life, and many go on to amass great wealth. As we will see, this development intensifies the conflict between these new Catholic converts and the old Christian faithful. Taking a step back, we now know that a majority of these new Catholic converts, and particularly their children and grandchildren, are sincere in their faith. Most do settle into their new Catholic life with the same piety as their Spanish counterparts. Nevertheless, these same converts remain in a cultural netherworld. Although Christian, most of them still speak, dress, and live just as they did before. In time, however, and to the great relief of Isabel and Fernando, the Catholic presence of these new converts helps to unify Spain in that it leads to a steady stream of voluntary conversions to Catholicism. Eventually, Spain becomes a commanding presence in the Catholic world. Discussion questions. One, our present world is dealing with age-old multicultural issues as well as the diversity of religious beliefs, similar to the ones facing Fernando and Isabel. They chose to deal with it through forced conversions. What kind of problems did this cause and what would have been a better solution? Two, in 16th century Spain, cultural and religious diversity was perceived as a threat to national identity. Because of this, Isabel and Fernando imposed a uniformity of faith. What would you do if someone or something forced you to practice a different religion? What protects us from this happen happening in the United States? Three, in what ways do we still employ the principles behind purity of blood? Look beyond the obvious racial implications. Four. Ponder with one another why the Jewish race is the target of so much discrimination throughout history. Three, the Spanish Inquisition. We now understand the turbulent state of affairs in Spain as Queen Isabel and King Fernando take the throne on December 13th, 1474. These are the days of unrest and distrust among the Spanish people especially when it involves new converts to the Catholic faith. As we know from our previous discussion, the king and queen are determined in their efforts to unify their people around a common expression of faith. Consequently, 
their desire to ascertain the legitimacy of these new converts to Christianity is a crucial part of their sincere effort toward a unified Spain. During this evaluation process, it is of utmost importance to the monarchs that the Catholic faith remains pure and undefiled. It is for this purpose that they make a request to Pope Sixtus IV, asking that an inquisition be established in Spain. He grants this appeal on November 1st, 1478. Fernando and Isabel believe that the Inquisition is necessary to preserve the security and promote the spiritual and social unity of Spain, as yet it is important to remember that this Inquisition has no jurisdiction over practicing Jews and Muslims. It only affects those who are professed Christians, but may be concealing the fact that they are actually practicing their original faith, and in doing so, mocking Christianity. One of the most enduring myths of the Inquisition is that it was a tool of oppression imposed on unwilling Europeans by a power-hungry church. Nothing could be more wrong. In truth, the Inquisition brought order, justice, and compassion to combat rampant secular and popular persecutions of heretics. When the people of a village rounded up a suspected heretic and brought him before the local lord, how was he to be judged? How could an illiterate layman determine if the accused beliefs were heretical or not? And how were witnesses to be heard and examined? Most people accused of heresy by the medieval inquisition were either acquitted or their sentence suspended. Those found guilty of grave error were allowed to confess their sin, do penance, and be restored to the body of Christ. The underlying assumption of the Inquisition was that, like lost sheep, heretics had simply strayed. If, however, an inquisitor determined that a particular sheep had purposely departed out of hostility to the flock, there was nothing more that could be done. Unrepentant or obstinate heretics were excommunicated and given over to the secular authorities. Despite popular myth, the church did not burn heretics. It was the secular authorities that held heresy to be a capital offense. The simple fact is that the medieval inquisition saved uncounted thousands of innocents and even not so innocent people who would otherwise have been roasted by secular lords or mob rule. Despite these explanations, the Inquisition continues to be at the core of the black legend of Spanish history, as historian Warren H. Carroll explains. Some aspects of the Inquisition's work are undoubtedly very offensive to the modern reader. But at least the historian has a duty to put the Spanish Inquisition in perspective, even though this may be rarely done. The Inquisition did not engage in mass murder. The estimate of the total number of those burned to death is no more than 2,000, with an average of about 100 a year. Some 15,000 were found guilty of false profession of Christianity, 
but were reconciled with the church in the public ceremony known as the auto de fe, meaning act of faith. That is, public confession of their error and reconciliation with the faith they had previously rejected. The number reconciled was always much larger, larger than the number burned. A large majority of all those questioned by the Inquisition were completely cleared, as were St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila. For them, the Inquisition was a shield against calumny. In the best possible light, we see that the Inquisition is the church's response to a situation that requires legal structures to restore order in a terribly disordered world. This solution represents the best legal practices available at the time, overseen by the best minds in the fields of law and theology. It is their job to provide a standard by which to measure the orthodoxy of spiritual movements and materials. In this endeavor, the inquisitors are able to remove obvious, heretical, and pornographic elements that begin to seep into the life of the church. Historian Thomas Madden concurs with this perspective. He boldly states, the Spanish people loved their inquisition. That is why it lasted for so long. It stood guard against error and heresy, protecting the faith of Spain and ensuring the favor of God. However, as we all know very well, there is a negative side to all of this. The Inquisition's attempt to solve the problem of pseudo-converts is tainted by the fact that many of the old Spanish Christians hope this process will strip the new Catholic converts of their wealth and social standing. Anyone with bad intentions could accuse another and put them under the scrutiny of the Inquisition. Undoubtedly, these conditions perpetuate both prejudice and fear among the people. Although the number of victims is wild, wildly exaggerated and the injustices and cruelty are overstated, the growing list of abuses come to the attention of Rome. Even though these abuses are not the horror stories of dark dungeons, sadistic churchmen, and excruciating tortures that some would have us believe they are worthy of correction and admonishment by the Pope. Were there cruel inquisitors in some places? Of course. Were methods of interrogation distasteful to modern, modern sensibilities? Sure. Though we can certainly think of worse methods employed even in our enlightened modern times. Given its formidable task, of guarding the purity of the faith in Christian souls. However, the overall record of the Inquisition in dealing with heresy is not only defensible, but admirable. Discussion questions. One, to this day, the Spanish Inquisition is a lightning rod for those who wish to perpetuate horror stories in the name of religion, and who have little love for the Catholic Church. Indeed, anyone who wishes to beat the Church about the head and shoulders will inevitably bring up the Spanish Inquisition. Why do you think these myths persist 
and how can we combat them? Four, exploration and religious revolt beyond Spain. While the Inquisition gains momentum, Fernando and Isabel look beyond their Spanish borders to the vast and uncharted lands of the East. This is the year 1492, and Christopher Columbus sets sail in the name of Catholic Spain with the hopes of finding a faster route to the lucrative trade markets in India. With this movement beyond the confines of Europe, the known world is left behind. In fact, in a very real way, the old world is passing away and a new world is emerging. Here is how Theresian scholar Dr. Peter Tyler describes the effect of the new world on 16th century Spain. The wealth and power of Spain increased enormously. It was metaphorically and literally a golden age, an age of change and excitement, the opening up of new worlds while the old world in the shape of medieval beliefs and outlook, especially in the church, still survived with remarkable tenacity. This new world unfolds as the Spanish conquistadors push deeper into the Americas, pouring gold and precious metals back into the coffers of Spain. Both Spanish and Portuguese colonies flourish in various parts of the new world, becoming wealthy through trade and formidable in their naval powers. In addition, these trade routes provide links not only with the American Indies, but also with people of the East. Along with this expanding view of geography, the world of 16th century Europe enlarges its view of science and art as well. A burgeoning of scientific discovery and artistic achievement mark this new era. Ushering in the age of astronomers like Galileo and, of course, Copernicus and his revolutionary idea that the sun is the center of the universe, not the earth, thus putting our planet in perspective. A flowering of art and literature occurs at this time, welcoming in a new renaissance and with it the genius of Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and William Shakespeare. No doubt, this era is witness to one of the greatest surges of creativity in the history of the world. Indeed, Europe is a dominating force, but there is still more turmoil and change to come. Without warning and with great force, the winds of change begin to sweep through the continent of Europe in the form of religious revolt by the way of the Protestant Revolution. From the moment that Martin Luther posts his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Germany, he wages an ongoing battle between the leaders of the new reforming movements and the power and authority of the Catholic Church. Teresa of Avila is two years old when Martin Luther begins his re religious revolt in Germany, far from her Castilian home. We can be sure that St. Teresa is unaware of it at the time, but she will eventually learn that the Protestant Revolution challenges papal authority, calls for an end to various ecclesiastical abuses, and eventually becomes a dagger that divides all of Christendom. It is indeed a troubled time for the church. On the eve of the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church simultaneously manifested both deep piety and corruption, 
the religious environment was both rich and confusing. If the Protestant Reformation had not been set off by Luther, it would have occurred in a different place around the same time, a classic illustration of the maxim that nothing is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Other men besides Luther in other countries besides Germany were also demanding changes within the church. By the time Teresa is 20 years old, however, she is certainly aware of the great division in the church. Even in faraway England, trouble is brewing. In a bold move, the King of England, Henry VIII, makes a startling request of Pope Clement VII. Henry asks him for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, the youngest daughter of Queen Isabel and King Fernando of Spain. After 18 years of marriage, King Henry challenges the validity of their marital union because of Catherine's previous marriage to his brother, Arthur. In reality, we know from historical accounts that King Henry is actually only interested in producing a future male heir and hopes to accomplish this by marrying his mistress, Anne Boleyn. After the Pope's denial of his request, the king takes matter, it matters into his own hands by divorcing Catherine and thus separates himself from Rome. Far from being deterred by papal action, in 1534, Henry has Parliament declare him the supreme head of the Church of England. Spain, however, has a different political and cultural climate from its Western and Central European neighbors. As we know by now, the rulers of Spain stress, stress unity among its citizens. Also, by the time of the Protestant Revolution, the Spanish Inquisition is 40 years old and is quite capable of addressing any type of religious dissent. Essentially, Spain pro proposes reform of the church from within rather than participating in a revolt from without. It is interesting to note, however, that some of the same elements that protect Spain from the effects of the Protestant Revolution become contributing factors to its subsequent decline. Outwardly, Spain is enjoying an unparalleled period of glory. The learning of the Renaissance, the translation of the first bilingual Bible published in 1522 by Spanish scholars, the founding of the University of Alcala, and the expansion overseas all add to Spain's prestige. But the glory was short-lived. By exalting the notion of pure blood and absolute orthodoxy, Spain ultimately stifled her growth and undermined her whole economy and culture. Discussion questions. One, just as Teresa of Avila lives in an era where the old world is passing away, and the new world is emerging, so do we. Give some examples of this. Do the new world changes exhilarate you, or do you find yourself hanging on to the old? Two, we all want to live in the glory days of peace and prosperity without conflict or pain. What is it about our human nature that creates havoc when life is too easy? Three, how do some of the same elements that protect Spain 
from the negative influences of the outside world become contributing factors to her subsequent decline. Five, 16th century monasteries and religious life. Throughout the history of Christianity, there are those who make the decision to leave their families and live together in communities, not of blood, but of faith. These communities range from loosely organized households of lay people who are free to leave at any time to those that are well-defined and ordered around a rule of life. These ordered communities include monasteries or convents of men and women who take vows in which they permanently consecrate themselves to religious life. While this is a beautiful and holy way of life, there are times when these religious communities are in need of reform. For example, during the Second Vatican Council, the Council Fathers instructed all religious communities of men and women to go back to their roots in order to identify the fundamental essence of their charisms and adapt them into a more vibrant renewal of religious life. The late Father Benedict Groeschel, CFR, assures us that setting aside a time of renewal is normal and necessary. The church, made up as she is of people, is constantly in need of renewal and reform. Any living thing, be it a plant, a human body, or a social organism, needs constantly to be renewed, or it will become moribund. Spiritual renewal, when it occurs in human life and is done under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, often is also a reform, that is, a return to basic principles, a refocusing on basic goals. As we see, the process of renewal in the church is more or less constant, although there are times when the need for reform is more obvious and intense. Now and then, the church needs a deep and comprehensive reform during which a soul-searching process of examination and change must take place. Such a process may require several decades and is often the occasion of great conflicts and even schisms. The process of major reform most frequently begins when things in the church are in serious decline. During St. Teresa's time, the monasteries are suffering from all manner of abuses stemming from the abandonment of their original rule of life. The three fundamental principles of monastic life, poverty, chastity, and obedience, known as the evangelical councils, are cast aside for power, promiscuity, and wealth. It is widely known that there are many holy and devout men and women in monasteries during the 16th century in Spain, but there are also those whose motives for entry into religious life are suspect. For example, some women enter the monastery because they lack an offer for marriage or they have no dowry to bring to a marriage. In some cases, the women who enter are widows seeking stability in community life rather than answering God's call. Add to this the limited social opportunities available for women, and we find those in the monastery who may not have a genuine vocation. Likewise, 
some of the men entering religious life do so as a last resort or to escape misfortune rather than seeking a life of holiness. In general, these monastic communities succumb to the repeated assaults from the secular world, leaving little that distinguishes them from the society at large. Unfortunately, religious life in the monastery is now lukewarm for many and even scandalous for some. Without a clear grasp of the vow of poverty, both men and women fall prey to possessiveness and materialism, which fosters a kind of class structure in the community. The idea of the haves and the have-nots is perpetuated when things such as a place at the table, a private room, or adornments of dress are held in high regard. We will learn that in her own life in the convent, St. Teresa recognizes the many dangers that lurk in the corners of these houses. In fact, her awareness of these pitfalls is the catalyst for her dedication to reform. We will see how she addresses the threat of material desires by instituting a strict rule of poverty that requires her sisters not only to give up their belts and buckles, but also their shoes. More important than even these concerns is the protection of the very life that is lived within the monastery walls. Essentially, it is the rhythm of monastic life that keeps the devil at bay. It is the divine office of prayer and the safety of the cloister that sustain its members. Once the enclosure is breached, all manner of disruptions will invade the holy ground. The concept of the cloister encourages the members of a religious community to keep their minds and hearts centered on God and discourages attachments to the outside world. Remaining within the enclosure, unless there is a serious reason to leave, is a discipline that bears fruit in the souls of those who abide by it. The relaxation of these rules is responsible for much of the decline of monastic life during this time. Even for Teresa, the fact that her original convent does not enforce this prudent rule causes much turmoil and temptation for her. The cloister of the monastery, though prescribed, was rarely observed. Frequently, the nuns visited family and friends sometimes for lengthy periods. Also, relatives and friends could enter the cloister, some of whom even took up residence in the monastery. For example, after their father died, Teresa's younger sister lived in Teresa's cell for nine years. Visiting in the monastery's front parlor was a daily occurrence, a pastime to which Teresa became very attached. Undertaking the reform of a religious order can be an uphill battle. However, even though scandals are abundant, the church has the tools to correct them. In fact, in situations like these, where reform is drastically needed, the Pope has the right to call an ecumenical council to seek help from his brother bishops, as well as prominent theologians throughout the world. This is exactly what Pope Paul III does in 1545 when he calls the Council of Trent. 
this 19th Ecumenical Council of the Church not only deals with internal corruption, but more importantly, it effectively refutes the heretical teachings and anti-Catholic attacks that are so much a part of the Protestant revolution. The strong measures that the council takes to bring about reform also include directives concerning monastic life. In essence, the Council of Trent launches what we know as the Catholic Reformation. Some call this the Counter-Reformation. Now for a remarkable irony, quite possibly the most profound and lasting consequence of the Protestant Reformation was that it prompted the Catholic Reformation. At the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church ended simony, the sale of church offices, enforced priestly celibacy, and made available official inexpensive Bibles in local languages, Vulgates. At Trent, the church also decided to establish a network of seminaries to train men for the local priesthood. Hence, by the 18th century, in most places, the church was staffed by literate men well-versed in theology and whose vocations had been shaped and tested in a formal institutional setting. Thus, the church did confront the modern world. We are reminded of St. Paul's observation that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. In fact, some of the greatest saints the world has ever known emerged during this time of Catholic renewal. Among these are St. Charles Borromeo, St. Peter Canisius, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Philip Neri, and St. Francis de Sales, whose work still deeply penetrates the Catholic faithful today. Discussion questions. One, share your thoughts regarding Father Groschel's comment that all living things are in constant need of renewal or else they will die. How do you participate in the renewal of your mind, body, spirit? Two, why is it important for those in religious communities to honor the concept of the cloister? How can we apply the idea of the cloister to our own lives? Three, it is interesting to note that in the midst of the division of the Protestant Revolution, God raised up many of the church's greatest saints. We also live in a time of division. Who is the Lord raising up today? Six, women in 16th century Spain. Although the 16th century begins under the reign of an exceptional woman, Queen Isabel, her life does not necessarily reflect the experiences of the average woman in Spain. As we know, the Spanish culture at large is traditional in its values and patriarchal in its attitudes and approach. As a result, the roles of both men and women are well established. Women in particular are limited to a finite set of norms, which vary only as they relate to socioeconomic class. Among the nobility, a woman's chief duty is to make a prudent choice in marriage, as it is the vehicle for her family's political and social ambitions. 
Marriage for a woman of this class is as much her job as the commanding of troops is for her brother. For better or for worse, marriage is what every Spanish girl wants. The intention is to marry young and marry well. In fact, marriage is her only opportunity for protection and security, even though in some cases it is at best restrictive and at worst abusive. However, as more and more ships set sail for the new world and more and more young Spanish men sign on, the marital hopes and dreams of young women are dashed. In this dire situation, husbands are hard to find, and as a result, it is common for a teenage girl and a man more than twice her age to wed. Women in working-class families who are artisans and merchants would often marry later, waiting until their prospective husbands could afford to set up their own household. This means that the men would need land to farm or a trade to master, and the woman would need a dowry. Work and home life are one and the same in these Spanish families. Wives are equal partners in the trade, even without holding an official title. While their husbands are away on business, for example, they would manage affairs at home. In fact, in many cases, when a woman marries, she is choosing a trade as well as a husband. However, most women in 16th century Spanish society find themselves in more traditional jobs, such as laundresses, dressmakers, and household servants. All women, even those in the highest ranks of Spanish society, are prevented from taking advantage of much of what the culture has to offer. As skilled as they are with their hands and as savvy as they are in the marketplace, these same women find themselves outside the political and social scene without access to higher learning or advancement. Despite the fact that most women are barred from higher education, the instruction of young girls does exist in Spain at this time. Private schools are available to teach manners and the art of homemaking to the daughters of the upper classes. Nevertheless, for most women, their opportunities for growth are curtailed and any variation from the norm is frowned upon. As we look at the life of St. Teresa, however, we see that she stands out in this climate of meager opportunities for women. She is a force to be reckoned with, a woman of boldness and courage. Never one to think of herself as a second-class citizen, Teresa sets out to not only change her own circumstances, but to change those of the women around her from the inside out. In this cultural atmosphere, St. Teresa's intentions are clear and well-defined. Her desire is to give her nuns the opportunity not only to lead a life of prayer, but to do it in a serious way actively fighting the errors of the time and sacrificing for their salvation of souls. She intends for them to be trained in various careers and to be taught to read. Administrators, scribes, accountants, pharmacists, and teachers are all needed in this new community of devout souls. Indeed, Teresa's new Carmel is a friend of books, of learning, of verses, and the canticles of St. John of the Cross. 
what a defining moment it is for women and specifically religious women in 16th century Spain. Saint Teresa is indeed a pioneer forging a new path for women to follow. It is safe to say that Teresa defies the cultural norms of her day, but what is the feminine genius that enables her to do so? And how do her actions affect us today? The answers to these questions will become clear as we return to Avila and begin the tale of a Spanish noblewoman who becomes a great saint. Discussion questions. One, how is it that a patriarchal society such as 16th century Spain could raise up two of the most remarkable women in history, Queen Isabel I and Saint Teresa of Avila? What does this say about these women? Two, the educational opportunities in Spain at this time are limited to preparing young girls for marriage and teaching them to manage a home. Women are taught how to sew, manage food production, purchase goods, and pursue both artistic and musical endeavors. Today, this kind of instruction is virtually non-existent. Gone are the days of the home economics and the art of homemaking. Even though most women will marry and have a home, very few are formally prepared for this type of activity. Have we thrown out the baby with the bathwater? Has our unrestricted access to education left us impoverished in everyday living? Explain. If this episode was helpful for you, please consider sharing it with a friend or two. We would also appreciate it so much if you left a rating and review so that more women can discover Endow and our mission to help women cultivate their unique feminine genius. Please also check out the link below to learn how to become a monthly donor to help defray podcast production costs. And of course, if you'd like to talk to me about joining or starting your own Endow group, please email me at simone.riscala at endowgroups.org. And remember, you are the heart of Endow.